Hello, fellow artists and creatives. Welcome to episode one of the Happy Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and today I'm joined by my guest, Nathan Young. As my typography teacher, Nathan is someone I look up to in many ways. In terms of his exceptional breadth of knowledge on the subject he teaches, the sense of community fosters in his classroom, and the way he makes sure to connect with each and every one of his students. In this episode, we discuss Nathan's start in teaching, how we should approach design, formal experimentation, how to define success, work culture, and more. In the description, I will have my notes on the episode, additional information, and where you can connect with Nathan. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Nathan Young. To start, uh, can you briefly introduce yourself and your background as a designer, I guess, if that's what you consider yourself? Absolutely, yeah. So my name is Nathan Young. I am an assistant professor of instruction at the Tyler School of Art and Architecture, part of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I do consider myself a designer as well as an educator. I have a uh, private practice, Nathan Young Design Company, NYDC. And um, that is both a place to you know, stay current, just like keep using those muscles that I enjoy using. And, um, and also that sort of feeds into like a, an education, we call it like a research practice where we teach, we serve the university, we also conduct research and so forth. Designer, that means, you know, doing graphic design work. What else do you want to know? Uh, so I know a lot of people or a lot of professors kind of add the, uh, the school thing for like extra income and it's not really their main focus and they really want to focus. They primarily view themselves as a designer or an artist. And I'm also curious. I mean, you seem to really enjoy teaching from, I don't know, being in your class could be wrong, but yeah, I'm just curious about that. <laughs> I hope I'm not. Yes. So I, um, I feel like I wear both hats, although strictly speaking, by choosing to be a full-time professor in design, you then commit to that being your sort of main source of income, at least for me. I mean, I feel like maybe there are profs out there that, um, have such a profitable side hustle yeah. that um but um i'm not one of those people so um for me you know the the teaching takes quite a, a bit of my um attention but the design work especially in the summer is um more than you know it's not a hobby it's like it's like part, occupies a, a, a piece of my my brain that is the, if my brain is a pie it's, like, <laughs> it's a good healthy slice of yeah maybe uh, even the the whole pie in the summer <laughs> in the summer fair how, no how not big? Even, no no oh, okay. too much teaching stuff during the summer really but, but um, and what what you spoke to earlier where some some educators are kind of designers that then um, flirt with teaching on the side. Those are probably adjunct professors that have design as their full job. And then they maybe teach one class um, every semester or maybe maybe even one class every once in a while, every academic year. 
types of folks are really valuable to the university as well because they're even more plugged in to industry and can really bring that like, boots on the ground realism to the classroom, which in a program like ours is really important. Forgive me, I'm, I'm, I'm sick as well, so I feel like yeah. I have this uh, velvety, no, <laughs> velvetyness okay. to my voice that I don't normally have. It's um, totally fine. Yeah. For me, I'm I'm more of the um, I fell in love with teaching, and so then I went and got my master's degree and decided that this is what I wanted to do: is that I wanted to live this hybrid life of teaching, design on the side, and some people do it the other way around. Is that how you started then, like as an adjunct, or? Yeah, that is. I sort of fell into teaching um, through. Uh, just really good luck, honestly. Uh, at Syracuse University, my neighbor taught at the School of Design. And there was a need for really basic um, Adobe InDesign, like literally learn the software <laughs> class. And so that was kind of my, my in. And I was pretty young. I want to say it was five years out of college or something. That would have been 2010. No, so I graduated college in 2007. So I was only three-ish years out of college when I started that InDesign class. And then, um, God bless the um, the folks at Syracuse University, chief among them, Brad Martinez, who became a teaching routine, uh, sorry, a teaching mentor for me. Right. Um, who basically kind of knocked on my door and said, hey, um, you're teaching my students. Uh, who are you? And, um, what is your agenda? And um, I would like to offer to mentor you, um, which was a clever way on his part to sort of Trap support. you in the system? Oh, um, yeah, 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 support. I mean, support support me, yeah. New, um, someone new to teaching, but also, yes, I think very much, like, bring me into, if I'm going to be teaching their students um, in a elective capacity, then, um, then I was sort of brought into the fold. And so that led to um, a positive relationship where, I was offered to teach courses in the curriculum. And then I basically just started doing full-time teaching, but paid as an adjunct, which I don't recommend to anyone, but um, in terms of a career. <laughs> yeah. Because I had uh, sort of fallen in love with it. Yeah. And other unique circumstances at the time, it, it, um, it sort of made some sense. And so that's why, you know, I, I really cut my teeth there for very low pay and no health insurance, but in a just a really excellent program with really um, talented teachers. Uh -huh. And so um, a lot of what I bring into the classroom today still is, um, you know, from those kind of early, uh, just being thrown into the fiery uh, pit of, of ch challenge, fiery challenge pit. That's a, that's a common phrase we use, right? Sure, um, of course. Uh, what, what, uh, I'm curious, like, why did you grow to love it so much? Oh, that's a great question. I always felt like, like, even when I was in school, I was like, man, this is so much fun. Like, it, 
and going to industry after school, I missed the time that we had to like talk about what made design good. I found that all of that sort of deliberation <laughs> that we did, and this is where I worked. Maybe maybe other places are not like this, but I found that that kind of deliberation that's necessary to learning design was not necessarily necessary in a studio context. Like it's more just like the art director says, I like this, I like this, I like this, move on. And the kind of deeper thinking about, you know, something uh, that was on the wall and how could it be more interesting and right there, there's not always time. Yeah. Um, and, and that's okay. I don't want to poo poo that. Like, I think that, um, there is actually a, a, a beauty to that, that in school, we do take this time to ink and talk. And then um, ideally, you've like built up these muscles. And so when it's time to do the work, it's almost hopefully, it's almost like just like a machine that you turn on and on your ink mm -hmm. brain, like you just, you flip it on, you sit at your desk, you do the work, and then you can flip it off and, and go home and enjoy your life with your family you know yeah and, um, and it felt like i had a typography professor in grad school that said um this stuff should just pour out of you and i found that really um freezing in a way because uh, if you can't tell the way i talk i'm i'm an overthinker and so <laughs> you know he's basically telling us don't overthink this like let yeah. it pour out of you because the skills are in you already so just do it. You know, you, it's almost like school is, hopefully school is like harder. Well, okay. I don't want to make my, that sounds very inflated. Cut all that. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what do I want to say? No, whatever. I'll spit it out. School. Hmm. Okay. Now I've lost my train of thought. Well, yeah. I don't know if this will help jog it, but I'm also curious because you said you said not to poo-poo it, but like, do you think it is better to actually think about the design after you've made it rather than just like keep spitting it out? And I think a lot of people do this in other jobs too, where they kind of just go to work and do the work and get it done and turn their brain off and don't think about it. I wonder, do you think it would be better to think about it and like constantly trying to get better although like you said there might also be like you don't want to overthink it and sometimes you could fall into that trap so i don't know if i really posed a question there or if i jogged anything yeah i could pose a question you did okay <laughs> yeah well, okay so if i were to rephrase i don't mean to say that um con concepting shouldn't be rigorous both in school and in a studio context um that's where you're doing your hardest work probably is the the ideating and the um, research components of design and i think where my type professor doug scott shout out doug scott at RISD, when he said let it pour out of you it's almost like that's the compositional stuff like that's the um put it on the page stuff that's the stuff that should where hopefully if if in school we've done we've built up your muscles the right way 
you feel good just putting it in a place that feels good and getting it instead of tinkering or what my, my boss used to call um, noodling, where you put it here and then maybe you put it here and then you put it here and then you try it here and then you make this a little bigger and then you make this a little bigger and then you move it over there. All those things you can spend hours, right? I found that at a certain point you do so many projects that you kind of gain a confidence of like, you know what, this feels good and there, there it can stay. And again, I, I think this is more compositional sort of visual choices and the concepting choices are the ones that are much more rigorous and important to not just phone in. How do you strike that balance then of, well, maybe you also don't think that it's like necessary to improve at a certain point. But I guess I tend to believe that it is important to keep improving. So like, how do you strike that balance of, I do want to continue to get better, but at the same time, I just, I don't want to overthink things and tinker with it so long that it starts to cause problems with due dates and deadlines and that sort of thing. Yeah. I have a couple of splintered thoughts about that. One is that mm -hmm. I think maybe this doesn't totally translate to student advice for students because it's more something that I found about myself close to 40 years old, but I feel like, um, 40 years young. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you want to be on your growing edge. I don't know. I picture it like a knife, which actually is a very precarious metaphor to say that we're on this knife edge, but if I'm on one side or the other, on one side, I'm, I'm lazy, I'm just falling back on what I always do. And I always use the same colors and the same compositions and the same kinds of responses to graphic design problems. And then on the other end, I've like overextended myself and I'm out of my comfort zone. And I, I don't know if anything's good and I, and you know, I've like, step too far into the unknown you, you want to be on your your growing edge so more the middle which is like this uncomfortable place to be because you really have to work it's almost like ab strength or something you have to like tighten your core and make sure you, you hover there and stay there and um it's way easier to kind of like fall onto either side instead but because yeah complacency laziness that's not going to yield your best work. I think I just want to say, I think the metaphor is great because I actually <laughs> stumbled across this idea in, in my research paper, which I'll be embarrassed if you ever get around to reading that. It's, <laughs> it's really all over the place, but like this idea of keeping one foot in the known and one foot in the unknown is like where you want to be. But yeah, like it's really a fine line, like a knife, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Man, okay. And so we've talked about sort of two prongs of like graphic design process. One is concepting, ideating, which hopefully is always rigorous. And then I was saying that, you know, Doug Scott tells me that type of typography composition, let that just pour out of you. Like hopefully you've done all the prep work. And so you can just go out onto the field and play the game and then go home and hang your boots up and go, right? But let's add a third prong which is visual innovation and formal exploration. And that is sort of similar to concepting where 
hopefully you're always kind of pushing yourself into new ways of making or new new forms that things can take. Um, and so I don't know if that is necessarily something that pours out of you. I think that's where hopefully we're always thinking of new ways of making. There's this um, poster designer. Well, that's pretty limiting to just call him a poster designer, but uh, his name's Braulio Amato. And he publishes these books every year of like, kind of just everything he did. And um, they become like collector's items because they only do a couple, you know, like a hundred of them or something. Man, he has these these posters that he'll do for like a concert. The image making starts with like a fried egg on you know grill and so he's got this you know random photo from his iphone of this like fried egg and then it gets sort of translated into this graphic for a, a concert in the most beautiful way and he's constantly like doing this where you just find something that looks interesting and even though it might seem so random in the end it's all just safes man you know like we're all just you're just catching people's attention with color and man and all those elements and principles of design and so and and if you can find a way to give me something that i haven't really seen before in that way now you've got my attention and you can get me to buy a concert ticket you know so that's one example of someone who i think is always kind of looking for a way to make an image that he hasn't made before and maybe is without precedent you know that's a big statement to say but feels at least to my eye to be unique and yeah. seen before how do you do that this visual innovation idea or maybe just this or what do you call it formal formal exploration Form. like how do you i mean that's a great question too i practice, think but... so that's where it's sort of you can kind of play you know how you can like play football you can play baseball like, yeah it's almost like you play graphic design like if you the great thing about formal experimentation to me is that there is a commercial value to it because um clients are always going to want something that looks cool and what's cool is what what is new usually right so yeah or or, or one I say one way to be cool is to be new i should say and so there is a commercial value to formal experimentation and at the same time, it usually means making choices in ways that are really just fun. Like, and the whole point is to kind of surprise yourself. So um, I have this class form making that I teach at Tyler where basically I'm just creating like games for the students to play and games have rules, right? So, so often, I'm, I'm giving the students different rules that are very hard to like hold at the same time, like make it work right side up and upside down. So if we turn it upside down, the poster should still feel like it works. Right. And then I stole that one from um, another mentor of mine, Tom Waddell, his poster class at RISD. Um, and then like, I'll throw another one in there, like use a font that a professor told you to never, ever use. And then, um, and then at the same time, you need to respond conceptually to this 
piece of music or something, you know? And so then now we've got these three things that you're trying to balance all at once. And it kind of feels like playing a game, like I need to dribble and I need to like, not, you know, I don't, I, not even real, I don't know anything about baseball, but you know, what I mean? like trying to like do all these things at once is what leads to interesting visuals. And I can already hear critics saying like, where's the client and all of that. Yeah. Um, and I think the trick is there's a difference between school where we're kind of like, so I guess I was talking about building muscles before. Let's call this like stretching, you know, like, like you are, you're building like a limberness in your abilities to make different kinds of things. And so if you kind of expand your, your concept of all the things that you are capable of, I think then when you are responding to a client's, um, you're going to have such a wider sort of gamut of possibilities. Also, I think then there's ways to do formal experimentation that in response to client prompts. So the client is a photographer for nature documentaries. <laughs> well, if I'm going to try to visually innovate, maybe I'll start with um, doing research on national parks because I like that iconography and that vernacular, but then also like thinking about textures that I find in nature, tree bark and so on, eagle feathers, right? And so then I kind of start like thinking about all these kind of inputs into my brain. And if I do this kind of game that I'm talking about, I've, I've made sure that the ingredients are relevant to the client, you know? Yeah. Um, I, whereas Braulio is like just taking a picture of a rotten, a fried egg and, and like <laughs> um, maybe here we're like introducing the right ingredients into the dish, right. um, but we're not totally sure where we're gonna end up. And that's both valuable because it's new and interesting to me and the client, but also conceptually relevant, hopefully. That makes sense. <sighs> That also I, feels like... Does it? I feel like I'm a crazy <laughs> <Yeah>. person sometimes. <laughs> no, no way. I feel like even when you're describing, like, the... I mean, those rules are, they seem arbitrary and kind of silly, like, oh, it makes sense upside down. But I think even when, an uh, like, a client, they usually present you with rules that you have to follow. And I don't know, there's this quote I really like about how creativity is born from limitation. It's like, everyone knows, like, the rules of soccer have been the same forever, but... It's when people are playing within those rules and still coming out with new things or, I don't know, maybe coming out with something clever underneath a client's rules. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, it feels like it makes sense to me. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe something that I circle back to was uh, way back when you were talking about, I think it was maybe Doug Scott that was uh, your mentor. Is that who you said? Mm -hmm. Doug or Scott, someone typography else? teacher. Rod Martinez, teaching mentor. Oh, Rod Martinez. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious, like, just what he taught you. Was it a lot of what you just talked through? Or uh, what is the word? Maybe, like, is it pedagogy? Like, how to teach correctly? Mm -hmm. How to, how to, like, push your students? Like, I feel like you talked about it a little bit in terms of, like, getting people to innovate through these kind of silly rules. But yeah. Or stretch. Uh, I don't know what else. I'm curious what else he taught you or what else you picked up during that time. Yeah. So the genesis of, for me at least, that formal experimentation thinking 
does kind of go back to Rob Martinez and Syracuse University comm design program where I I have embraced this formula that they use, which is 110-1, which is 100 ideas and sketches, 10 pretty solid ideas from those sketches, and then one final beautiful polished finished thing. Just that basic process is like not unique to Syracuse or even graphic design, right? That's basically the the funnel that is the design process, which is reductive in nature, or rather it's expansive at first and then it reduces back down. So you go out, 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 and then you hone in, 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 in. But I think it's easy to forget that formula. And so it's it's similar. I'll tell you where it's different though, is that sometimes with formal experimentation, it's actually less about a hundred ideas and it's more about following the one idea, whatever it may go. Um, and that's actually where like, if you do this thing and then you add this thing and then you make it upside down and then you slice it in half and rearrange the two halves, right? And like, you just keep going. That's where, that's, a useful route to formal experimentation, I feel. And with that, it's cool. That's what kind of blew my mind because I come from this school, and I even, you know, I use this with my students today, yeah. of 110.1. Yeah. But when you're trying to visually innovate, sometimes follow, I call it the white rabbit, uh, another assignment in form making. You got to follow the white rabbit wherever it's going to go. And then also know when to stop because if you just keep slicing and chopping yeah. and introducing, then you end up you can kind of end up with a crazy mess. So knowing when to when to stop is also a interesting component. Well, I can definitely see that you just like love that you love design. Mm -hmm. uh, but circling way back to like why do you love teaching so much? Is it like the learning how to teach, or is it more so? seeing the students yeah. learn. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to finish that thought because I, I probably didn't adequately. Well, you might have, That's I right. just don't remember. No, <laughs> I, I basically said like, oh, I liked talking about design in school and I did. Okay, so to answer your question, why do I like teaching so much? Of course, I think the things that uh, I should say are that you know, I love I love inspiring <laughs> young people. Yeah, I love like changing their lives. Um, uh -huh. and, that, and that is true. <laughs> um, I also, I guess I feel like design has been a popular um, career path since I don't know, the 80s and 90s. Um, certainly in the 90s and 2000s is when you know, every art school needed a design program. And, um, sometimes I don't have the data on this. Like, I don't know where everyone goes, you know. There's so many design students that graduate every year. And it, is there enough jobs for everyone every year? Like, I honestly don't know. I think, I think that these skills are transferable. And so we're not doing students a disservice by accepting them and teaching them. Um, <laughs> That's a bit of a tangent, but what I'm trying to say is that yeah, um, my education's not a waste. I guess. 
No, Correct. but I think what <laughs> absolutely not. But I get. I think what I'm trying to say is like these programs exist, and so I want the people that um, we're empowering with these tools of communication to do so in a way that exciting and not boring and and hopefully like critical um, so i mean you know critical of what design has done in the past and what design has enabled in the past and so to really kind of like use these tools and think about what is the responsible way to use them and to participate in this career i don't, I don't even say career this like just anyway, i i should i should I know I can do better on that front in my teaching. You know, I think there's so many things that we're distracted by. Like we're just trying to get everyone out the door with these good essential skills, you know, and, and sometimes we maybe forget the social um, criticality part of it. That's important to me too. Like I want students to enter the field with a sense of like how to do it better than it's been done. In the past. And I don't mean like, sell more things but i mean like be better global citizens um so maybe that means like changing the kinds of bodies we see in advertisements for swimsuits at target you know um i was in um target not a target it was like the dutch version of target and they had a trans man modeling underwear you could see that they had had top surgery and like it was such like a powerful thing to normalize in that you know commercial space and if you think about and when i think about when i grew up the bodies and skin top tones that i saw in those kind of places it was it was quite different you know and so that that normalization is such a powerful thing um, that we hold and sort of skill set and, and our abilities to do. And all it takes is a designer in the room to say like, hey, this is an opportunity, you know, to do something good. And clients listen, you know. Um, and But you have to kind of be thinking about that to begin with. Like you have to be thinking about what has been held up as valuable who has been held up as valuable in the past? And how can that be different? And what power do I have to, to introduce change, you know? So anyway, that's just one example. No, that's, uh, I think, the, one of the core themes of my podcast, like what I want it to be. And a huge reason why my essay went so off the rails is, um, like, something I've been thinking about a lot lately is just, basically how do I make a difference in the world? And especially when I'm starting out, it seems kind of impossible. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tend to think maybe at first I should just focus on the, uh, on the small scale and the local. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's kind of like, I want to get to a place where I can make large scale changes, but at the same time, I don't ever want to discredit the power of like what I can do now, even in something so small as like, like micro, interactions with people day to day, just like the seeing the doorman or with mm. the guard when I walk in or my classmates or my teacher, like I, I really want to connect with them and mm -hmm. 
like change the world in, in the small ways that I can now. And I feel like you're talking about, yeah, like design is, I love design and I love art. And I think something that seems to be true, although I'm not positive, is you also seem to really enjoy like the technical aspects of design, which is something mm -hmm. I really enjoy. And I'm technically a visual studies artist, so it's interesting because I'm actually steeped a lot in classes that don't highly value the technical aspects, even though graphic design does. Um, mm. But at the same time, the thing that's great about visual studies and what you're saying is you can think critically about these things too, and, and there mm. are changes you can make. I think that's a good good example of it. But um, maybe an interesting question would be, how do you know you are changing things for the better? It's kind mm. of a scary thing to think about, yeah. especially because I think, and I actually want to add this to it too, as a preface, my views on things have changed over time and also like learned a lot. When I look back, I kind of think I was a little silly in the way I thought about things. And yeah, so I think that's just kind of, kind of scary. But uh, yeah, how do you go about navigating all of that? Man, that's the question. question. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. No, it's a great question. I mean, hearing you about these tiny changes that you might introduce to the world just by being a bit more kind to people or forging more authentic relationships with people. I think that's a really, really powerful idea. And it makes me, <laughs> at the same time, I'm thinking about these sort of, you know, I'm talking about the power that graphic designers have. When really, like, if we want to be kind of a bummer about it, like, <laughs> do we really, like, the, the, the ways in which we operate can, can, play in the, the capitalist, you know, machine or not, you know, I mean, there's, I think making a um, effective protest poster also really, you know, has like influenced the way people think about an idea or a movement. You know, if you think about like protest posters from Cuba, in the 1960s, like those still have like a long resonating sort of effect on our, on our understanding of that time in those ideas um anyway but so often you know we kind of want to we we want to use these skills to like put food on the table right so then yeah if i'm if i'm working for clients who are to make money like is this really am i really going to change the world um, in an effective way like should we actually all just like put down your macbook pro yeah. and like yeah watch, you know do grassroots organizing, you know, that's what, yeah. how we like, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't mean to be like overly overstate our impact, but mm -hmm. um, in terms of how do you know you're doing good in the world? The other thing that made me think of is good in the world is entirely subjective, right? So what I'm saying is a positive thing about that Dutch target to some other people, maybe that's not a step forward, you know, maybe to some other people that's not. Um, so anyway, what, doing good is subjective, right? But um, well, I don't know how much we want to get bogged down in the weeds. Kind of like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the nature of values um, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, but... cut that, cut that, cut that. Okay, so <laughs> what do I? How do I know I'm doing good in the world? Um, but I mean, it is a good question. It's such a good question to ask of yourself, and I feel like if you're asking it, then you know you're on the right path. <laughs> If you haven't even asked it at all, then 
think surely there's more you could do. We all got to just do our best, you know? Yeah, and you solved it, Nathan. <laughs> we got to do our best with the time that we have and everything that we can, we can give to it. Yeah. Um, well, maybe, unless you have more, I can also, I do have a, do have a bit of a roadmap, so maybe something kind of in line with it is defining success as an artist, which mm -hmm. is also actually pretty hard, but uh, maybe how you do it personally or what you think misconceptions about it are as an, mm -hmm. not just an artist, but a, a design. Sorry, I know artist comes with a lot of baggage. An mm -hmm. artist or a designer or a creator, just a person in general. Well, for me, I think maybe to a fault, I'm less interested in my work being seen by a lot of people. I don't know. That's never, maybe, maybe that reveals something personal about me. I'm not, maybe I'm a little afraid of it, but I'm so much more interested about just like, did I do something interesting? And then hopefully that means that it works in the world and is going to be seen by people. Right. So like, if I do a label for a coffee cold brew can, I want to do something that is appropriate um, and make and make and it feels like, of course, like perfect, but also is surprising and delights people. And then if I do those two things, I feel good in my in my head, and then I move on to the next cold brew can or whatever you know and i think but but there are those that would say like oh well you know we we work with the marketing team and we need to demonstrate that we've increased sales by such and such and and um most people are great too most people yeah yeah um, the luxury of my sweet faculty gig where from those obsessions, but um, this is all terrible. But all this, well, no one, no one should listen to this. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like anytime I'm interviewed in this context, I feel like I start acting as if I know everything, and I certainly don't. I speak from my own weird little corner of the world, and my own little, my own little practice, you know. Yeah. Um, um, how do you define success? I think um, to me, yeah, is it especially as a designer, is it appropriate and is it interesting? And I want it to be both. Like, if it's interesting and not appropriate, I think you've kind of failed your objective. And if it's appropriate but not interesting, you failed your objective. I'm kind of paraphrasing them on a book called uh, The Brand Gap. And the, the author's name is slipping my mind right now but um marty newmeyer is his name in it he talks about um i'm seeing if i can find what i'm looking for you know well, anyway i'm paraphrasing from his book but it's a great what little is, book I'll, it'll be linked in the description um <laughs> we'll, have, we'll pop the audio up now, i'm curious what uh what does interesting mean to you Innovative, um, unexpected, surprising, 
joyful. Another uh, term that I got from Rod was uh, actually also a book titled uh, Smile in the Mind. So, you know, even if um, even if something is quite sad, I think it still can give you, I love this phrase, a smile in the mind. Barrel Mulholland. His name is Barrel. I believe her name is Barrel. Barrel. Oh, like done. I think you might. You know, like Donkey Kong Barrel. <laughs> no, it's like Meryl, but Barrel. Yeah. yeah. This phrase, smile in the mind, I think is like so perfect because it's when you know something, it's almost like the designer has given you a problem and you solved it in your brain and you get this little sort of injection of, of happy chemical for having figured it out in your brain, you know? That's what I'm after, usually. Why is it important to you? Mm -hmm. Is it like a, I want to make people happy or more so you? Yes. So sort of how I was saying, like, students are going to learn graphic design. So, so let's make sure we do it. We do it good. Um, I no, also yeah. feel like, you know, people are going to make stuff like the, the world is so full of stuff. Oh, too much stuff, honestly. Yeah. And like, but if we're gonna make yeah, you know widget or cold brew can or whatever mm -hmm. let's do it in a way that is surprising and delightful hopefully so that it was worth introducing that thing into the world and occupying someone's attention with it because it's such a bummer <laughs> to encounter objects in the world that are under considered mm -hmm. You know, and um, I want to at least um, give things healthy consideration. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you could change, maybe, or maybe, I don't know if this is too much, so I'll, I'll leave it open to you, like three to five things just from your like design expertise in the world, what would you change if you could just like snap your fingers and have it change? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Godlike power to change things across the visual landscape of graphic design. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, that's portal. too much power. That's too much power, right? Like um, um, Massimo Vignelli phrased it as design is a, waging a war on ugliness, which is in one way positions us as like super important, right? Like we're defenders of, of beauty um against this uh, oppressive force of ugliness but it's actually you know kind of a troublesome way to to phrase it because then who who's ugly to whom the arbiter if, <laughs> if we showed massimo god bless him um rest in peace massimo if we showed him some of braulio amato's posters which i think are incredible um i'm pretty sure he would consider them ugliness so so if you give me godlike power and then I, I say, well, obviously we're going to take away all the bad design, I suppose I should use my godlike power to remove my, I should destroy the infinity stones is what I should do because 
we shouldn't trust me in terms of what's ugly and what's what's good if I have that much power. But um, boy, I guess I'll just say that I would want all all designers to approach what they're working with on with um the skepticism of um how designers have executed those kinds of things in the past. You know, so if you look back and say, okay, what what didn't they get right? And that can get pretty extreme. Like maybe we shouldn't be making cold brew cans at all. You know, like maybe you should go to the coffee shop and put it in a refillable container and and take it home. You know, so um, so there's that. You know, I mean, if I could strike certain fonts from everyone's computer, I guess I might. I don't, know. don't make me name names. <laughs> Get Comic Sans out of here. No, you can keep that one. Oh, we can keep Comic Sans? What? <laughs> For ironic purposes. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. What about the TV portal, though? Yeah, so that's got to change, obviously. Okay, so number one, redesign TV portal. Number two, redesign every election uh, ballot in the United States. User test it, right? Like, do yeah. proper, like, UI UX testing, make sure that it is understandable to everyone that votes. We could keep going on down the line, but what about how about like just general tips? Because I was thinking about doing this actually after this class, which I'm I'm taking typography for those listening with Nathan. I kind of wanted to do like a, a layman's type guide that I could send to all my family members. So like oh, maybe cool. Yeah, maybe like just what are some small tips that non-designers could use? Hmm. Well, like Massimo, Massimo has a list of fonts that are like, here are the five fonts you need. And normally I would say that that's really reductive. And But, you know, if you're just like giving someone basic tips, you start with that list because it covers like, every type classification like there's an old style there's a modern there's a transitional there's a sans and you can have quite a lot of variety with that those handful of you know five fonts um big middle little is another phrase i borrow from rod martinez which is you know if you say typographic hierarchy that's a lot of syllables but i think everyone kind of can kind of wrap their head around big middle little and that goes with anything like not just type hierarchy but visual hierarchy as well like there needs to be something that feels big and something that feels little because there's not something that's little the big things don't feel big so it's by that that scale contrast that things feel small or they feel big and so the same thing applies to type hierarchy something's big something's middle something's little and if it's if the middle is too big it doesn't feel like middle it feels like kind of big ish and if it feels little ish then it doesn't feel like or sorry, if it's middle little, then it doesn't feel truly middle, right? You got to like really delineate what's big, what's in the middle, what's little. This is a great question. I think also um, display type. So when type is big, it can be kerned quite tightly and it can be leaded quite tightly. And people really forget that or like, I don't know why, but it takes a while for students to feel like, wait, I can do this. Like I can go beyond just what InDesign kind of gave me. Yeah. Um, and you can overdo it, right? You can get it kerned so tightly that it's like, okay, what are you doing? 
tight but not touching is kind of the common phrase. And it's a it's a look. I mean, loose kerning is also a look, but find personally that we read the shape of the word more than we read the the individual characters in the world. And so um, when you turn turn tightly, you um, greater give greater emphasis to that shape. And we like shapes too. I think that's the other thing is that we aesthetically we we're we're attracted to shapes. So if the word becomes a beautiful shape, you've made the type that more compelling. And then, man, some of the other stuff is just like, just use what works. Like column widths, basically you want 50 to 70 characters. If you have more than that, then your type is too small or your column is too If, yeah, I mean, it's just like, duh, you know? Um, and what's another kind of just like, duh thing? Column widths. Well, and of course, don't. I, what's that? I just don't stretch type. I thought you were going to say that, but. What do you mean by don't stress? The stretch. Oh, sure. Eh, whatever. I mean, <laughs> look, you can stretch it if you're trying to communicate something. But yes, I think if you're disproportionately stretching type in a non-purposeful, intentional way, then I like to say you're taking the Mona Lisa and you're just kind of stretching her a little bit. It was perfect. Like it had all this intention behind it. And then you just went and kind of unintentionally stretched it. So um, don't do that unless you're trying to do something cool and uh, communicate something. But what were you, was that the one you were going to say? Didn't mean to interrupt. Or did I interrupt? Uh-oh. Oh, you're okay. Um, well, you know, RAS, uh, you want them to go in and out. So. If it starts to feel like an anvil or like a kitty cat, the back of a kitty cat or something, it has too much of a shape. And so you want this kind of beautiful, like, in, out, in, out of the lines on the rag. And um, Jeff Glendening gave me this phrase, pinched pie crust. So as if you were to take your thumb down the paragraph and go, like you do with a pie crust. And if it's not doing that, then maybe something's wrong. You know, maybe the column width is off, maybe the type size is off, maybe we need judicious use of hyphens. And then you can always go in and add soft returns to kind of make the rag uh, do what you want it to do. Well, I do enjoy you uh, answering what the layman needs to know, but Mm -hmm. I also find it funny that I'm probably going to have to put, I don't know, like an explanation of rags, kerning, letting, (laughs) and display type. (laughs) But... But that is, those are good tips. And put a little insert in there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I assume typography is also your main thing, or are you just super knowledgeable about it? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that I'm knowledgeable about it. Um, (laughs) Of course. I'm sure there are many that are much more knowledgeable than I. Well, you'd make a great teacher. (laughs) Great college. Feel that way. (laughs) Glad you feel that way. And I teach, you know, with the, my colleagues that are also very knowledgeable. And we all benefit from each other's knowledge. And I'm, I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know. But, yeah, I think when I'm approaching a problem, I often think about type first rather than creating some kind of image. I'm more of a typographer than an illustrator, which is not how I started. 
oh, really? my design career. I was much more of an image maker. Hmm. I found my way to type through through teaching, honestly. Through through teaching type, I got better at type hmm. and got more interested in type. I prefer type over illustration. That's the best um, one. I mean, I do. I, I love them both, obviously. So often we do need to read something. So I want to approach that part not as an afterthought, you know? And if I can do it with just that, then I've created something really lean and effective. But it's fair. I mean, I, I love creating images too. I used to do theater posters for uh, the school I graduated undergrad from, Colorado State University. And those were all about image making. I, I was always trying to integrate the typography into the image, but I'm very big also on um, visual metaphor, showing an image that is um, represents not just what happens in a book or a play, but what it's about. Um, that's pretty important to me. And you can do that with type, but you can really do it with image. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I don't know. I just love, I love, um, maybe I really just love teaching type too. Like, I don't know. I love that there's like rules yeah, and skills that you just, just basic principles that you can just hand to people. Like here yeah. they are, you know, and all you have to do is practice them. You know, it's yeah. almost like, um, like doing clay or something. It's like, okay, you need like this ratio of water to dirt and then, you'll have something good. Type is sort of similar in that way. And then at the same time, we can break those rules once we kind of know them. And when you break them with intention, that's when it's most interesting. And so I kind of like helping students do both, like learn the principles and then break the principles. And both are really fun. It is interesting though, because I feel like your definition could technically be applied to the to design and image making. And yet, I, I don't know, the rules or principles really feel almost like more concrete. Whereas, like it feels maybe like learning a language that has rules and follows them. Whereas, and like obviously it doesn't sometimes, but with English, for example, I, I just feel bad for anyone that has to learn English because it's like there's all these rules that are never followed. <laughs> but I don't know if that's a good conceptualization of it. But yeah, I like that. Maybe, maybe. All right, to wrap up, there's kind of two last things in that what are some of the most important lessons you've picked up as a designer? And like, what would you tell someone about to go into that world or maybe about to go into the professional world? And then the last one is also where people can find you at. But Okay, here we go. <laughs> most important lessons. Type but not touching. Type but not touching. That's Pipe your rule. Touching. Type earning but not touching. It makes your headlines look incredible and intentional. Do it every time. Can't go wrong. Big middle little typographic hierarchy. It's all you need. Yeah. I don't even have anything more grand to say than that. And then um, recommendations to for folks entering the field, I think, um, I mean, I said a lot about, you know, participating in this field, like, responsibly, but I also think the culture that you're walking into needs to be changed. Historically, the, the, the sort of work culture around graphic design has been a very kind of grind-based culture. 
and that's especially true of young designers that um, they're expected to kind of work crazy hours and um, get sort of endure like brutal critique and you know people have just historically said well like that's that's what it takes to fit in this business and I think um I think that's lazy I think that no it was easier to be mean you know it's harder to think of the kind way to say the thing that you need to say to that person it's easier to say this is ugly I hate it and it's harder to say here's what's not working about this for me in a way that is productive for that person you I I, I don't accept this culture is the way it is because it needs to be this way in order for this industry to run the way it's going to run. I reject that. And I think people entering this field should reject it too. I think they should expect kindness and they should expect healthy work-life balance. And if we all um, work towards that goal, then we can make it happen. Especially if those people who have those values enter positions of power at their studios or they start their own studio, then we can change this this culture of this industry. And I think it, it is changing, but that's just something to think about is what kind of, what kind of fields do you want to, to work in and like work to make that. Happen? And then the last thing is where people can find me. So my studio uh, website is nathanyoung.design. Find me at the Tyler School of Art. If you Google uh, Tyler School of Art, Nathan Young, Bye, Bing, there I am. And I also have a podcast. Uh, it's called uh, Fruit for Thought. There's two episodes, one on apples, one on oranges. Find that in your podcatcher of choice. Wait, I was just going to was not expecting it to actually be on fruit. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, though. Um, Dang, put out a mango so, one soon, please. Thank you so much for doing this uh, this conversation with me. It was really fun. Thank you for joining me. I really, really appreciated it. It was very fun. And hopefully maybe we can even have you back on someday to talk about that that second question you just answered. Because that was, <laughs> sounds like a whole other beast. But thank you so much, Nathan. Bye. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Nathan Young. If you're enjoying this podcast and wish to support us, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback, the best place to reach out is on the Happy Artist Instagram. Thank you again for listening, and until next time.